This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 20, with me, Russell Hillier. In this episode, I'm joined by Chuck Prudonik, veteran of Bosnia, Kosovo, and the Afghan War. He's also featured in the documentary called The Bards of War, which in my opinion is the greatest and the most authentic film of Canadian soldiers in combat that's ever been made. Chuck's going to get into the behind the scenes stories of this documentary and tell us about hunting Taliban in the Kandahar province. He joins me today from his home in northern Alberta and our conversation starts now. So Chuck, for the listeners at home, I'll just give a, a brief background. You sent me a message, I, I don't know, probably five or six months ago, and you said, Russ, you should check out this film. Have you seen it before? It's called yeah. The Guards of War. And I, I had heard about it. I think I'd seen the document, not the documentary, I'd seen the, the trailer for this. So I had some vague understanding about what it is, but you're in this film, you're in this documentary. Yeah. Do you want to give the listeners a, a bit of a, a rundown on what this film is all about? Sure. So back in 2006, uh, I was part of one PPCLI, a company, we were the Red Devils, and we deployed in January of 06. Uh, we were still under Operation Enduring Freedom, thankfully. And so we had good ROEs. But we spent the first portion of that tour getting blown up for the most part. I think our company alone had 13 IED strikes in about three months. So we were getting, and we only had 15 vehicles. So we were going through vehicles at a pretty rapid rate. Yeah. What, what part of Afghanistan was this, Chuck? We were Kandahar. We were based in Kandahar proper. And our patrol area was up towards Gombad near a ring of mountains, about five, six hours away called the Belly Button. And the Belly Button's an area that the Russians wouldn't even go into. They left it alone. So they put us on the doorstep of the Belly Button and said, well, you're going to be an irritant to the Taliban here. And basically we got blown up left and right. There's just, there was one, there was two ways in to this area and you couldn't not get blown up. So it was just a horrible spot to be. Eventually we, uh, we were working with the Americans there and eventually everybody involved said, this isn't, this isn't working out. We're not causing the effect that we want. So we pulled back from that spot and uh, in time for fighting season to basically consolidate, work with the Americans and British and start pushing and up until this point, so we're talking about June, July here, we'd had media from everybody, like media from Lisa LaFlemme. She was with us for a good chunk. She came up to the belly button with us, did a, a big march up there with us. She was, she kept up. Her cameraman didn't keep up, but she kept up. Um, and a lot of other press. And we had, other than her and a, maybe a couple of others, we had very poor relationships with the press. They were, they were looking for stories. They were out. To, they were out to get gossip on us. They were out to fry us. Uh, Christy Blatchford was one of the only ones that was embedded with us that actually understood us. She spent the time before the tour to embed with us and get to know us. Yeah. Especially, Didn't she write a book about, uh, yeah, about 15 that, days. Uh, experience? Yeah, 15 days. Yeah, okay. uh, she, uh, she, she was mostly with Charlie Company and, and Recky Platoon. She knows them. Those she knew those guys very well. She knew a few of the rest of us not too bad. Great lady. Um, didn't look for a story. She just wanted to tell to tell the story, not find a story. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny how you mentioned like the the press and, and what their their aim is because you know it's so often it it's not just to do sober reporting. It's it's more of like okay, we have an agenda, so. What, what are the clips that we need to sort of show the angle that we want to show? And 
that seems like what you're talking about there. Well, we, we were actually, I think, and I don't want to say which agency they were from. We had two of them with us and it was about seven, eight o'clock at night. This is early in the tour. So we had uh, our sister platoon had been in an IED that day, just about dark as things got dark there about seven o'clock and luckily everybody was okay, but they'd had a pretty bad vehicle strike. And I don't think that these reporters understood that at night you can hear very well and we could hear them talking behind our vehicles saying, well, this is boring with these guys. They haven't even been blown up or shot at yet. We should have been with those other guys. Yeah. We, uh, we pulled them aside and had words with them and explained that the Taliban don't delineate between us and reporters. You could get blown up as easily as us. Like you could yeah. get shot easily as we could. And we, we weren't trying to scare them. We were just trying to, you know, you're, you don't have some aura or some magic bubble around you that when an IED hits, um, it's everybody here. Like we've lost reporters here. We've lost uh, diplomats here. We've lost some of everybody here. And I, I don't think it woke them up. I think they're just mostly irritated. They weren't where the action was at that moment. So fast forward to, well, I sent you that one article <laughs> and the fellow that was interviewing me said, no, don't worry about it. I won't use your name in the article. Halfway down, he starts throwing my name in the article. Oh yeah. I, I took a pretty good hit from that from, uh, from uh, some folks, but whatever. It well, I was going to ask you about that because in the, that I think it's the Globe and Mail article and yeah. you're, you're on the record as saying, well, you know, I think you're talking about the, the sad state of some of the equipment that you have. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, any, anyone who has, has been in the army, you know, that uh, you, you don't talk to the reporters unless uh, you've got a, a lot a script to read and, and you were definitely yeah. going off the script. Well, and the, one of the great things about Colonel Hope was that he, our, our CO, was that he said, go ahead, talk to them. And, uh, you know, within reason, of course. But we had pretty much free, free reign to say what we wanted, and I said what I wanted. He told me we'd be off the record, and I didn't think I said anything that was too uh, uh, you know, damaging or, or wasn't known. But the problem was, is that I, there was that they didn't want people to know that we'd spent that kind of money ourselves. Like we were all dropping a thousand plus ourselves mm-hmm. and we wanted to, the best possible gear we could have. And our CEO authorized it. So we did it. Um, we did kit checks. It's not like we bought stuff. I saw forums after the tour where guys were saying, well, it's all going to fall apart. We all kit checked ourselves. We weren't incompetent. You know, we went over there and, and linked up with the Americans we took over from and had them look at our gear even. And they're like, you're good or you're not good. Use this. Don't use that. This was the show for us, right? This was our Stanley cup basically. So we'd wanted to get it right. And uh, so, yeah, we were pretty weary of the press at this point. Plus our platoon had gotten some trouble for wearing patches. We weren't supposed to have and yeah, other stuff, the normal, the normal stuff, right? Well, so we yeah, were- and the, the press too. I mean, uh, in Afghanistan, like my impression of the press was that, and I, I'm sure, well, I'd be curious what your opinion is on this, but it seemed like they were sort of going out of their way to create negative stories. Like I, I remember a lot of ink being spilled on passing Taliban prisoners over to the Americans or yeah. over to the Afghan National Army, whatever it was. Look what they did to Robert Semrau, uh, Captain Semrau. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there was a lot of instances where the press was sort of just like out for blood, it seemed. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And we, we experienced a lot of that. I mean, a good deal. Even I mean, uh, Captain Trevor Green was our CIMIC officer, and uh, I'm sure he's, he lives down near you, actually. I think he's still in Okotoks, and he took out of Shura, 
you know, uh, a basically a sanctioned, uh, no harm can come to you meeting, a village meeting. He took an ax in the head from a Taliban kid. And three of my friends put him down. Uh, Kevin Shamoon was the captain of, uh, of that platoon. He, he put him down. Sergeant Rob Dolson put him, helped put that guy down. Then there was an ambush. So, know, so just back up the, the Shura. This is like a, a, some kind of village meeting with the, village. the elders. Yeah. So a Shura by its nature is you, there can no harm can come to you. This, this whole version of Pashtun Wali that you hear about and, you know, that kind of thing where it's a very protected area. It's a, you know, no harm can come to the people in this meeting. Well, this kid comes out of the crowd from behind the village elders and plants a, an axe in Trevor's head. And, uh, well, that's a story in, a, in itself. That, yeah, even but that, that just goes to show you that there's no real safe places. In there's no, and this was early enough in our tour where we, where we had been screwed over enough by the local populace and by the Taliban where we weren't playing around anymore. And I think we, you'll hear, you've heard it in, in Bards of War in the film itself, a lot of the time when Scott's narrating or quoting someone, he's quoting me, like basically yeah. saying the shit that came out of my mouth most of the time, um, which was frequent. But fast forward again to where we link up with Scott was they pulled us back to, um, and we'd never met Scott before this. We had no idea who he was. We were hoping we wouldn't have any press with us. And when they, when all the press corps found out what we were going to be doing, cheers, they... Uh, they, uh, they backed off. Nobody wanted to come out except for Scott. And Scott only was allowed to come out because he was, a, he was covering the Oregon National Guard embedded trainers who were training the Afghan military. So he came with us. We wouldn't talk to him. We were in fights for a day straight. I don't think we talked to him for a day straight. Um, you're, you're like, well, it's just another reporter. Another and uh, we, we, know, we know what they're all about. Through this guy, he's just him hang us anyway like fuck no we're not dealing with this so it was about 18 hours in and and it we'd been fighting basically since midnight we crossed the line of departure went the wrong way about one minute later literally on a t intersection went right instead of left and we were in contact for the next 18 hours i'm sure if we'd gone the right way, we would have been in contact it was a gong show so we've been fighting hard all night uh our sister platoon another one had gotten j damned so they were recovering from that um uh, we were pulling back about a hundred meters to, to get reprovisioned and uh, we were pulling ammo and water off of one of the uh, bisons and medic bison that had gone to the rear, grabbed stuff and brought it up to us. And this is all going on under contact. Like there's, there's not like a pause, there's contact happening nonstop and we're running up to the back of this thing, grabbing water and ammo and running back behind the wall. And Scott runs up, grabs water and ammo and runs back to the wall. And he's doing this with us. So we looked at him and we're like, well, shit, maybe he's not an idiot. You know, maybe he's not that bad, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, like he's taking the risk with us, you know what I mean? Like he's, uh, and well, he thing. Yeah. yeah. Like in, in this film, uh, for, first of all, when, when I'm watching this film, the Bards of War, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is like within the first 20 seconds, I mean, there's like the bagpipes in the background and trace surrounds are filling the screen and you just, there's some shots being made of you guys in action. And, like within the first 20 or 30 seconds, I was thinking to myself, there, there's been no other documentary like no. this ever made. And, and you realize pretty quickly that this is maybe one of the best documentaries of Canadian soldiers at war in any war. And I know that's a bold statement, but the, the camera shots that were captured are, 
he was shoulder to shoulder with you guys. So, you know, is there there anything else like it out there? There's nothing like it out there. Uh, There was some other footage from a, well, funny story in that same couple days, we had a Canadian combat cameraman with us. So his whole role was to, and he's a soldier was to use his camera and document the fight. He lasted about a day. And then he's like, we were being overrun at one point because our sister platoon to our left, about a hundred meters away, had taken a J dam. Um, we were, there was maybe a dozen of us on the ground and we didn't have our vehicles in a good enough position to support us. And we're, we're not dealing with five or 10 Taliban. We're dealing with 500 Taliban at this point. And we're, we're, we're supposed to be boxing them in. Well, there's only a few dozen of us, so that's not working. So they're trying to, they know what's coming and they're trying to run us over to get out. They know the box is coming. They're not, they're very good fighters. Well, this, at one point we told the camera guy that the, the Canadian army guy, we're like, dude, you know, and he's using an old C7. It was funny. He's using old gear. It was, it was actually pretty funny. We're like, dude, put the camera down and start snapping rounds, dude. Like we're, they're hitting us. And you could see the Taliban, like 20, 30 meters coming at us, throwing grenades. Wow. And like, dude, camera down, gun up, let's go. Yeah. And he did cracked a few rounds over, you know, he did some stuff. He wasn't that, he did shit really, but he got in the fight a little. He was done. He was gone an hour later. When Once that tick died down, he was gone. Kaput, gone. I'm like, oh man. That was actually the footage that was on CTV about two days later. They sent that to, I remember Lloyd Robertson, because we captured some dudes. Well, you saw that in the documentary. Yeah. Those were some high tier dudes. The one guy was a really high tier dude. So we got told, I'm all over the place with this, but we got told to bring them back to Camp Nathan Smith because there were some people there that would like to talk to him, not Canadian. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> he went back. We took those guys back there. And while we were there, we ran into the kitchen because we'd only had like 20 minutes, ran into the kitchen, stole everything we could. And on the TV, there's Lloyd Robertson and all of us shooting on TV. And I'm like, holy shit, that's us. Yeah. So, I, mean, th- I think I know what you're talking about. Like, uh, you know, there's like those low like mud walls or whatever. And sort of like almost like an agricultural setting like yep. farming something every every fight over there was in some agricultural setting almost it was brutal to fight through everything was a fortress and everything was a was a kill zone it's just, and it's just made that way everything there is but anyway after about a day of scott being with us we kind of realized that he was shoulder to shoulder with us sharing the danger and we kind of you know opened up very quickly i mean getting shot at rpg blown up you a lot of you determine very quickly whether you're going to have a relationship with this person or you know no yeah if, if you can trust him because you can, and he was yeah. taking the same trust going under fire to the back of a vehicle grabbing stuff coming back out like you know what dudes dudes either he's putting on a show to impress us which is fine or he's just a dude so yeah i mean he's, and, it, and it could be maybe, maybe he was just trying to impress but i mean he he did what he he needed to do to get to get that footage I mean, and he'd spent seven years in the Oregon National Guard. He, before deployment, he, uh, he went and did workup training with those guys so he wouldn't be a liability in a fight or, you know, room clearing or anything. So we gave him kudos for that. We never got in a fight where you're like tripping over Scott. And that's yeah. the amazing thing is he's, like you said, shoulder to shoulder. And you talk about, well, the Canadian footage. I've watched Sebastian Younger stuff from Restrepo and Korengal. I've watched the Hornet's Nest. I've watched them all. And other than Ross Kemp, the British fellow who does like Ross Kemp over there with the Brits, there's no, and he's as embedded as Scott is. There's nobody that has footage that's that dirty close. Like Scott, when I'm throwing things in a room and going after a guy, 
he's there. He follows me in. I mean, he's edited out a lot of the the final result of a granny, you know, that stuff. He's right. edited that. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, it is totally, uh, it, it, from my perspective, it seems very, very unique. And I, I don't think that you can really uh, understand the Afghan war without no. having, you know, unless you were there like yourself, but as an outsider yeah. looking in, you, you can't understand the war unless you've seen footage like this because, well, I mean, Afghanistan, it was such a, such a long war. And of course, if you were there, you know, in the early days in Kabul, it's a lot different than if you're there in 2006 in Kandahar. But yeah. uh, as someone who had like a brother in Afghanistan and an uncle, th- this was still like very eye-opening stuff. I mean, the the gunfights were, because we hear, we hear like, when we think of Afghanistan, we think of IEDs. Yes. But, but you guys were in some legit, no shit gunfights like, those, for days on end. Like, some of those fights lasted days on end. Like, and remember, Bards of War is a 10-day snapshot of an eight-month tour. And I'm not saying we fought that way the whole time. We, we absolutely did not. But when we got into the fighting, it went for weeks and months. Like, it, it didn't stop. And, and if we weren't in it that day, we were in it the next day or that night. And somebody beside us, like one kilometer or 500 meters away from us, they were in it. It was, it was nonstop. And it... Uh, it wore us, it wore everybody down a bit too. Uh, it's late in the tour, it's 60 degrees. You're wearing 80 pounds of gear and you're that late phase in the tour. You, you get this up, you get to a point when you're fighting where it's exciting and you think you're getting good at it and then bad things happen and you realize, well, we're any, it's, you trick yourself into thinking you're undefeatable, yeah. but you, you can really be defeated quickly. Wait, when does that, when did that moment happen for you when, uh, when you're, when you're like, okay, well, we're, we're not invincible. The like when, couple, when do you hit the wall sort of? There's a couple moments. Uh, well, that footage from the very beginning where Scott's showing us at night, uh, dropping the mortar or me and me and Ben are using our 60 mil mortar that night. We'd been warned that area we were in Garmser in Helmand province, which is a bad, bad spot. We were warned that there were other nationals, so not Afghans, other nationals being, we knew there were Chechens there. We knew there were like other foreign nationals fighting us there. And we were, we were warned that they had night vision, that they'd taken out a lot of Americans. They knew to shoot below your plates, like in the stomach, that no Americans were getting shot in the plates or getting shot in the stomach. They knew all of this. And so one night, that night, we got set up and for about 300, maybe 400 meters away at night, we were getting accurate fire as we were doing our changes in and out of the turret. So we knew right away what we were up against. And that was a moment where- So, like, so that, that tells you right now that they probably had night vision if they're- Night yeah. vision. And he, he uh, changed his position every shot. So he'd shoot. He was only missing by inches, which is an amazing thing to do at night at 300 plus meters. Uh, and we'd only get a flicker on our thermals and he'd change position. So that's why we started mortaring him to try and get him to push out. Uh, he kept at us all night. He just- he kept moving, kept moving, kept moving. We, I don't think we have, we never did get him. We did the BDA after we never got him, but one dude kept one, all our whole platoon pinned in for a night. And that's when I was like, you know what, this, uh, depending who we're fighting, they can do anything. And then Sangin is that, uh, really dirty ambush we got into. And, uh, we were written off as dead at part of that. Me and Ben and Tony and, uh, well, the seven of Scott being one of them. 
one of the reasons he couldn't keep coming with us is because his chain of command was told that he was dead. He wasn't, but uh, none of us were, I guess. But uh, that was a moment where we thought, were we as good as we are one-on-one? It's never one-on-one. It's, it's, it's one to five or one to eight. You know, we're, the odds are never in our favor numbers wise. And they're good fighters. There's a, there's a moment when you realize they're not farmers making a hundred bucks a month from the Taliban with a shitty AK. These guys are geared. They're older. They're 30, 35, 40. They're all guys that fought the Russians. Every one of them. You might run into a few young guys, but the worst part about the young guys is they're not Afghanis. They're all from other countries. A list of them. We pulled passports off of a dozen different countries. Then they can fight because all they've done their whole life is fight. So when you get into it with these guys, they don't run. They don't pack up. They don't chuck their weapon. We were told from the Americans, oh, they'll chuck their weapon and run. We never saw that. They stuck. You watch that Sangin fight. Those dudes came at us in waves. They didn't stop. And what it, it yeah. uh, so th- this is like a highly motivated force. I mean, if, if you if you've got veterans who have fought the Russians and guys coming in from God knows where Chechnya, yeah. wherever, you know they're they're there because they want to be there. They're there because they want to be there. And I'm not saying they're there for purely uh, uh, puritanical reasons either. Uh, Scott's very good at laying out the groundwork for why they were there for the uh, human trafficking and drug trade. I mean, dude, I'll tell you, Hyderabad, the fight before Sangin, we were woken up. We've been fighting for about two weeks straight. I thought we might get a night's sleep in this leaguer, but a thousand of us in this leaguer, actually between the Brits, Americans and us, I think there was about a thousand soldiers. It was pretty impressive, actually. Big desert leaguer. They woke us up and said, you're going into this town about five clicks out there's an IED cell there and you're going to go do a hard knock you and recce platoon two or I was two platoon. We're going to go get these guys. Sure. No problem. A couple dozen of us, six dudes, no big deal. We roll in there and recce platoon went in first and got snapped and they're radioing back. And uh, captain John Hamilton, good, a good buddy. He uh, he's on the radio saying there's about 50 of them, not six. Uh, they're already awake. And this is about five in the morning and they're, they're, they've got us surrounded. There's about eight guys in recce up there at that point, a couple of snipers. And we were supposed to wait to go in and we didn't. Our platoon commander, thankfully, was a good kid. And he just pushed us through and we broke into the circle. That was about a four-hour gun battle where we were surrounded by about 50 dudes. And we, uh, that didn't look good for us for a bit. Um, a buddy of mine, Mars Janik, actually got shot in the back from about 50 meters away, an AK, uh, AK round in the back plate, and it it knocked him over. And this is a big man. He's got to be six foot four, huge bodybuilder dude. Knocks him over. And we thought, oh, shit, Mars is dead. And there, the medic, who's about five foot nothing, runs through a hail of gunfire to go save him. Mars gets up, tosses him off, and says, I'm good. Shrugs his shoulders and starts whacking round, down rounds again. So we, you know, you kind of chuckle at that moment, like, yeah, yeah. okay, big dude. <laughs> big yeah, tough. it's interesting that they would have, uh, you know, when, when outsiders think about Afghanistan, big conventional battles are not really top of mind. They, they don't come to mind, but that's uh, that's what happens. When they stand up and fight, it's, they pick that ground for a reason. And these guys pick the ground, these 50 dudes, because they had about $25 million in black tar heroin. So we eventually... 
won the fight. It took about four hours. And you can see in that battle, we went in and then we were like, we're running out of ammo. They're starting to mortar us. They had a mortar, which is a horrible feeling. <laughs> so we pulled back. We bombed up our mags again. And we're like, okay. And you can see in the video, I'm talking to Mark and uh, Dave Pickett, good buddies. Mark's warrant. And uh, I'm like, we got to go back in. And Mark's like, yeah, we're going. We're going back in. you going first. And I joked about Viagra. But uh, <laughs> is why wouldn't you? But uh, so we went back in. And the, t- it was, the funny thing is, I think the Taliban thought they had pushed us back, which they kind of did. So they had kind of filtered back into town and we're like met in the middle of town again, like game on. And that fight went very quickly because they, their morale was broken at that point. And they, we, we didn't have much trouble getting rid of them. But when we did our BDA and got about $25 million in black tar heroin, they sent a chopper to get that heroin real quick. Like that heroin was flown out in about five minutes. Um, those guys had to fight or die. They had to fight and win or fight or die because now you're the 50 dudes who lost 25 million bucks in black tart heroin game over for them. Whether they, they, whether we killed them or not, somebody's doing them in like, yeah, they, they're going to owe that money to somebody. Oh yeah. And those guys were geared. They were geared RPGs, RPKs, AKs that were not falling apart. They were all jingled up, but they were, they were put together. These guys were gunned up and like not three mags, like, 10 mags like these guys could fight a lot of people say that the way to understand the taliban is you have to look at it as if it's like a cartel 100 accurate and depending on the region you're in will determine how good that cartel area is and who's leading it too you would hear like we would always have our terps listening on the icom scanner and listening to what the leadership was saying between taliban commanders and a lot of it was misinformation they know we're listening so a good chunk of it is you know just trying to throw you off. Like, oh, there's 500. They're trying to fuck with you. They're trying to fuck with you. They're like, oh, there's 500 of us here and we're going to go kill these Canadians, you know? Yeah. Uh, you'd be, at, the first time you hear that, you're like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and then you're like, the, the interpreter's like, no, 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 no. It's okay. <laughs> like, yeah. okay. No, you're fine. Then you realize there might be 50 of them or something, which is still nothing to laugh at, but it's always misinformation until they're in a fight and then they're brutally honest. Like, Panjoy, our first couple fights, we could hear them on the ICOM scanner as we're engaging them 100 meters away. We're one wall over 100 meters away, smashing each other in the face for about four hours. And the dude is giving this play-by-play on the ICOM, the, the, the Taliban. Yeah, is. yeah. And he's like, don't worry. He's telling his commander, don't worry. Me and the four guys here, we've got them. There's only about four Canadian tanks, which are LAVs. Yeah. And 20, 20 soldiers, we shall conquer them, don't worry. 10 minutes later, well, so-and-so is wounded. There are hundreds of Canadian soldiers, and they have 20 tanks with them now. Uh, but we will hold them, don't worry. And then 10 minutes later, they're all dead. Everybody's dead. I'm running. There's thousands of them. Oh, shit. <laughs> so yeah, it's, man. It's, it's interesting. Uh, like, I know when my, my brother was in uh, Iraq fighting against ISIS, Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, the ISIS did use radios sometime, but they, they used a lot of uh, like just like cell phones. Oh, yeah. You see that th- these guys did the same. Uh, you knew if somebody had a cell phone in 2006 over there, they were up to no good. And yeah. After- and also with the Chechens, uh, th- this just like comes up every time. Anytime yeah. there's a, a terrorist war, the Chechens are there for some reason. Uh, I, talk- do- I had Jody Midic on the, the podcast yeah. a few months ago. He was mentioning how, uh, sort of like like you were saying, that they were getting some really accurate fire 
apparently the intel was that they were Chechens. What is up with that? Like that? Well, the thing is, they've been fighting the Russians. Well, it's going on ten or fifteen years at least now. It's been a long battle for them too, a slog, and it's not, and it's no longer, or I don't believe it is. Last I looked, it's not as quite as an open war, but it's still a insurgency war for them. They just like to fight, and they are the ultimate cartel guys. They are. They become the dawn of every organization. They are not low key players. They are, they're, when we met them over there, they were always section commander type guys or platoon commander type level guys. They were never your running gunners. They were your special. They're just good fighters. Yeah, they know what they're doing. Back to the, the Taliban being a cartel. We, we know about like the, the opium, uh, the poppies, uh, the hash, the human trafficking. That, that's like a, an aspect of this that I wasn't really aware of. Did you guys like what? What evidence did you see, or did you see any evidence of like their their crimes like this? With our own eyes, what you could see in like Kandahar proper is anytime they try to rebuild something, and more in 08 than 06, uh, because I didn't spend a lot of time in Kandahar, the city in 06. It was basically a drive-through. 08, when I was there as part of the PRT, we spent a lot more time in the city proper. You could see people that had come in from Pakistan who they were basically forced labor. You could see it like any building that was re- being rebuilt was purely Pakistani and they were not going home. They were, and they weren't sending money home. They were basically stuck there. These guys were stuck in the countryside. You'd see it here and there in the fields. Um, you were pretty sure these were not farmer farmers. These were forced labor farmers. And are these like kids or like how every age group? Yeah. There's no border. What they've done for their entire existence of Afghanistan, which is why every compound is a fortress, is they will go to the next village, steal whoever they want to steal or whoever they can steal. And when they come back, that's theirs now. You know, that's just the way it is. But if you go to Kabul, I didn't go to Kabul, but uh, several of my friends who did other things in Kabul, other types of jobs, they, uh, you can get anything from a Russian to a Chinese girl to like, to any thing you want in Kabul, it's there. It's a different, it's an entirely different organism there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it's just rampant. It's rampant. It's, it's brutally rampant. The drugs to me, I mean, I saw that with my own eye multiple times, like, but the biggest haul was that we had, I, we had garbage bags, clear plastic garbage bags. And we, we've got our, of course, our glory shots with them, like super troopers. But this stuff, we couldn't, you couldn't lift up a bag by yourself. They were so heavy. Yeah. And then like we would find, uh, if we pushed them out of a position where they had been preparing for a battle, you'd find their dope kits all the time. Like it was really hard to kill them if they're messed up on opium. Like you could yeah, hit because, them. Because you, you, like, you shoot them and then they're so fucking jacked up that they just keep going. Yeah. So it, it, as a stimulant, I don't know that opium would work as good as like meth or something where it's more of a, but opium, they didn't feel anything. So you could yeah. hit them all day and then all of a sudden they'd stop. Like you could just see the dude 20 meters away where he'd been peeking a corner on you. He would just kind of tip over now and you're like, huh, I didn't even shoot that. Time. Like he yeah. just body had said enough. So like, know, a, like a delayed reaction almost. Yeah. We saw that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty common thing. Like they lo- like load them up with pills, meth, yeah. whatever keeps them going and that, that, that would be like really fucking trippy though. Like if you're in a, in a gunfight with somebody and you're firing and in your mind, you're like, I'm hitting this guy, but he's still moving. Right? Well, and a lot of people would blame the five, five, six on that. And that debate will never end. 
I'm good with five, five, six. I'm fine with it. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with a big 308 NATO round hitting the guy either. Really good to hit him with a 25. That's my favorite thing to hit them with. But that doesn't leave any doubt as to the result. But yeah, five, five, six is fine too. I mean, you, we hit enough dudes with that to do BDAs after that. You'd go up to the body and you'd be like, okay, he took a few rounds. But you know what? All my friends or anybody I knew that got hit with their with 762 by 39. Some lived, some didn't. Uh, some had different injuries than others. And it's just, it is what it is. That debate will never end. I'm good with 5.56. Five, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think the, the end result is like, it's, it's going to be the same, really. It's going to be the same. It honestly it comes down to shooting technique and how good you are cha- changing your match fast and getting more rounds on the guy. That's what it is. You saw us in that ambush. We didn't, in Sangin, we didn't uh, let ourselves be victimized, although we didn't have much of a choice. We attacked. When we attacked, I thought, my God, they're going to run. They're going to break and run. That was my hope. And they stood and fought. Yeah. So we got muzzle contact range. I think Scott even has it in there where he turns the camera as I'm getting the guy in the ditch. That dude wasn't running. He, he was in it for the to the end. And yeah, put, put one over my shoulder and I put them all in him. So there's one part in the film where, uh, and I wasn't really sure what was going on here, but you might remember this. I, you guys have got somebody surrounded, I think, and he's just standing in a, in a field, like a farm field, and he, apparently he's got a knife, and the interpreter is telling him to drop the knife, drop the knife. What, what, what was going on there? So that was, that was Hyderabad. So we've been fighting four, five, six hours, and we're about to start the consolidation in BDA. So we're about to start to put our labs and to keep firing points to watch us, our arcs. We were basically going to link back up, determine the best course forward for doing a BDA, a battle damage assessment on the buildings, um, grab all the weapons off the bad guys, the dead guys, grab all the dead guys. Um, and which also means that you have to link up with whatever local elder is around at some point and say, Here's 28 guys, do your thing. Because we, we're also, there's a whole lot of stuff you have to do not to offend anybody after you've killed them, you know, how it is. So you, you got you to be culturally. Culturally, sensitive. which is fine. We did all that stuff. We did. But uh, this, so this dude comes out um, of nowhere and they were very good at follow on attacks. Every time we were IED'd or VBID'd, there was half the time there was an ambush or a follow on IED. So, we see this guy coming at my vehicle as it happens. And they, he got so close to the vehicle before he was noticed that they couldn't really train anything on him except for personal weapons. And they gave him warning shots, but he's holding up an opium knife, which is like a kind of like a drywall knife a little bit. It's got a hook on it. So he's coming at them and he's got one hand tucked into his, his robe and the other hand holding this knife. And we're like, well, shit. So the boys gave him a few warning shots. So he knew he couldn't get to the vehicle. So he did a hard turn towards us. And here we are. We've just three minutes ago finished putting down the last Taliban guy. And he's coming straight at us. And our interpreter at this point, this kid, good kid. But like, you know, he's just been in a battle too. Whatever we're doing, he's there. So he shook mm-hmm. pretty hard. And we're fairly alpha. You know, we're a little dominating. We're like, dude. Get him to fucking drop the knife. Get him to stop. Get him. You can hear Mark, our warrant buddy yeah. of mine, didn't tell him to do this stuff. And he is. He's telling him to do this stuff. Dude wasn't having it though, right? Like the old guy, 
old Afghan old is what we call him. He's about 40, 45. Um, he looks a little older in the video, but he's only about 45 probably. Yeah. Um, he wouldn't stop. So we gave him warning shots, which were very quick warning shots, like to get him to stop or drop or go away. He just kept coming. So two of the boys put finalizers in him, like sent him on his way and put him down. And we called up for the medic. And when we got there, the engineer call signs that were with us said, wait, we've got to check him. Like he's vested. He dude has got a vest on. So either he's got a dead man switch or he's laying on it now, or he's, we don't know if he's going to get remote detonated. We'd seen that before too, where they put a bomb vest on a guy who they knew would chicken out, yeah. but they'd cell phone him. So dude might chicken out or he might try and turn into you, you know, to, to give up. They just, they just detonate him. Um, We'd seen it with car bombs twice where they did that kind of thing where dude was like, I'm done. I don't want no part of this. And then boom, off yeah. goes the car. So we didn't know what to expect with this guy. Right. So he was done anyway. He got hit pretty hard. He, he died, but he was vested and you know, it looks those kinds of it's moments. It's just a really odd scene because like there, there's no way that he's getting out of it. And yet, no. Like, I don't know. You just, you just wonder like, is this guy like, is he fucking high or like what there what was the probably thinking the guy never made a sound even after he was hit. Like he didn't say a word, didn't make a sound. It was kind of eerie in a way, yeah. but he, he could have stopped. He could have stopped any time a minute before that, when we were telling him to stop and given him warning shots, he must've had 20 warning shots in total. He, he knew what he was doing and knew his what the outcome would be. Yeah. 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 Well, you, you guys like you, you did your due diligence, I guess you could say with that yeah. guy, but it's, yeah, it was, that was just like a really weird uh, part of the film for sure. That's Afghanistan, man. Like you're done the battle and then some dude loner comes at you with a bomb vest on and a knife and you're like, well now what? Like that's Afghanistan. Yeah. Do you think, do these guys know that they, they live in a, uh, I'm going to use the, the Donald Trump phrase. They live in a shithole country. Like, are they aware that like there's other parts of the world where like, it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe that they could live a better life or are it, they, is it just so like medieval that like abs- ways are entrenched? It, it absolutely depends on who you, who and where in the country you talk to people. Kabul isn't like the rest of the country. Kabul, the girls up there can wear jeans I mean, there's still restrictions, but I mean, there's almost a normalcy to the lifestyle up there that mm. doesn't relate once you leave Kabul. And in Kandahar, it is the heart. Uh, and and Helmand Province, like Sangin, Garmsir, uh, some other areas there, they're brutal. Like they will, they're Stone Age. They are literally Stone Age. So when you would talk to some of our interpreters who were educated guys, most, for the most part, a lot of them have been educated in uh, North America. Um, mm. We had a guy who was... Uh, been at the university of Chicago for a couple of years, smart dudes. They've just generally genuinely wanted better for their country. They wanted, they wanted some freedoms. They wanted, don't get me wrong. They, one of them had like three wives already and was like 25 and broke yeah. and he can't afford three wives. And they're like, dude, like you're 25. He's like, yeah, it's still a good life. I'm like, yeah. Okay. I get it. But dude, but so <laughs> Of these guys saw, and, and don't get me wrong, booze over there. You, I mean, I shouldn't say, well, whatever. They can't send me back to Afghanistan. I mean, you give your A soldiers forty bucks, they come back with two sixers of Captain Morgan's or Jack Daniels. Yeah. There you they, go. I mean, it's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere, right? Like as, as long as you got some greenbacks, you're going to get whatever you want there. Um, 
but then you have a generational gap where they fought the Russians and there's Russian. I mean, your brother was there. He can probably tell you depending where he was, there's Russian BDRs. Every kind of vehicle you can imagine is in the place it died. Um, Yeah. Russian equipment. Like I got a belt buckle off of uh, an old guy in a village once traded him on my second tour. Um, He had it hung up on the shop wall and I'm like, I want that. And he's yeah. like, oh. I got, got it from him, but he had a Russian helmet and he wouldn't sell me the helmet. These are all war trophies these guys have had since since the war. They don't forget. They artifacts don't how, of, it's just artifacts everywhere of this past war. I mean, but they don't know how old they are, but they can tell you how old they fought the Russians. And believe me, they can fight. Like you, again, I, I never, I don't think I went into it thinking that they were simple or stupid. They, they're not stupid. They're different. Um, their logic is a little different or a lot different, but you probably heard the phrase a hundred times. Uh, we have the clocks, but they have the time. I mean, yeah. it's true. you were never late for anything in Afghanistan. Um, so if you try and tell your officers or whoever's leading the patrol, out, like who's rushing, 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 like dudes, we've got to get out the door now. We're late for this thing. I'm like, Whoa, take a breath. Take yeah. a sip of water. We're not late. This is Afghanistan. Like let's get there alive. Like, I can remember we did a early in the, like speaking of the amount of time there, we did a, we did a sweep in the village where uh, in uh, Ching K where Trevor Green took the ax in the head, that village definitely regretted its decisions. So we're raiding this one compound and went inside and hanging upside down from a battered sling was a Martini Henry rifle, old British, yeah. 18 whatever if you ever watched the movie zulu yeah yeah I, I'm, a, I'm a history nerd that's the rifle the so, martini henry oh, was a cl- classic movie by the way this this is the cartridge that was no in shit it. oh yeah <laughs> so i see this thing and i yoink i mean it's not functioning this round this round had been split fired in it as they were famous to do dude just hung it on the wall it's been there a hundred years in this mud hut hanging yeah. as a history nerd like you, you would have been aware of like the British army should uh, try to get through the Khyber pass. And like, what yeah. was it like one guy got out? I think, I think one guy got out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at Alexander, Alexander, the, he went through there and spent what, four years in change in there everywhere else. He just walked over it. I mean, yeah. the nature of this place, it's uh, I'm glad I got to go there. Don't get, I'm not one of these guys who's a victim about this or a martyr. Like, Oh, well, I love that. I got to go. I love it so much. I went back again. Like, yeah, it was fun. It was difficult. There was horrible days. Don't get me wrong, but I'm of the mindset that this was an unbelievable experience to have. And all my kids that were with me, the, the ginger Ben and Tony, and these are all 20 year old kids who are all successful men. Now I work for one of them now, like not the one of those guys, but another one that was in our platoon. These guys all went on to become successful at everything they did because they chose to do that. They didn't choose to, you know, go a different way with things. I'm not knocking people that have an issue after the tours. I'm not. Everybody has a different way of handling it. But I also think you can come out of those experiences for the better. Well, and that's that's true. Like if if you're if you're in the army, if you've worn the uniform, then there, there's definitely some life lessons that you you learn along the way that you can apply to any job in the civilian world for sure. Yes. And yeah. and like you know I'm talking about like just like your work ethic, your your confidence for one, yep. uh, a lot, a lot of life lessons that could definitely lead to success. 
I mean, you can see how battered you can be and not give up. And that to me was probably the biggest life lessons. Like we being written off as dead and essentially um, not abandoned. They didn't abandon us because they thought we were, they were living and leaving us to die. They thought we were dead um, in Sangin. That, and we just chose not to do it. We just chose to keep fighting. We were down to bullets a piece. We didn't have hardly nothing left, but we just kept on fighting. And I, mm. I forward. I w- and so did all these guys. These I call them kids, but they were my kids at that point. I was old at that point. I was 34 when they were 20. So yeah. you you see, it's, it's been one of my best, my greatest pleasures in life has been to watch them become guys who are, so successful and happy and married and you know not that they don't have a minute here and there where they're like holy shit but they carry on with life and i think that's the most important yeah well i i think it's because you you learn a lot about yourself because you're you're really in the most intense environment that a human can be in where where it's life and death at any second and so you're you're learning something about yourself that not many other people will ever know we we would get asked all the time coming back like uh by people who either military or not military would ask i wonder if i could stand the test or i wonder if i'd make the test and uh and like would they be okay in a fight would they would would they how would they handle it and i think one of the biggest wake-ups to people when they would ask that and i'd say well it's not a one-time deal it's not like oh i've passed my it is every second you're taking a breath in a fight you are that test is overlaid like and i can tell you there's days when when it would happen and you'd be like i don't really want to be doing this today because it's you do it and you get over it and you push through it but that test is every single it's every bound you take it's every time it's your turn to get up on the wall and get rounds down range that's terrifying let's say they're telling you to go forward and you're like don't really want to he's got a machine gun set up there and yeah no it's it's actually a a way that uh i, I certainly hadn't looked at it before that it, it, it isn't a one-time thing it not just because you, you go over the top one time doesn't mean that you can do it That's, a second time well exactly you read about the accounts of the guys who went over the top and then went over it again and again and again and there's going to be a point where they don't want to go over that top i mean they might be great at what they do they're probably excellent soldiers but you can only force a guy to go over the top so many times and for us as canadians we got told this by the americans all the time there's not enough of you you can't i remember we were is hyderabad and we were clearing compounds with me ben tony and mark my three dudes because everybody else got left behind to defend some useless fob and three of the other guys were in the vehicle so we're clearing compounds four dudes while everybody else is doing the same thing in our platoon and the Americans with us, with the embedded training team for the Afghans, he's like, you can't do that with four guys. And I'm like, I've only got me and three dudes. And he's like, but that's a platoon position. That's a platoon objective. And I'm like, oh, I'm aware. I've been doing this 15 years. I know what it is, Yeah. but I, there's not more of us. So, you know, he's like, well, th- that's, there's got to be more of you. And I'm like, well, you tell our government that there's not, you know, yeah. there's 2000 people sitting in calf, you know, which I got in shit for saying once, but <laughs> <laughs> there's like 400 of us out here. And that's not enough, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, that's just a reality of the, the numbers, right? It's like a numbers game, sort of, you know, you and your brother know that those numbers are, 
they're skewed like one to seven, one to six for guys outside the wire. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a small it's a small military, so you gotta you gotta make do with what you have, I suppose. Yeah, and that's what you do. That's that is what you do. Yeah, Chuck, do you think that uh, like you know your years have passed uh, since you've been in combat, but do do you sort of look at things differently as time goes on? Like, I'm sure when you're in a gunfight, you're you've got like, you're thinking about it in one way. And then the next day you're reflecting a little bit more, but as the years go on, does your outlook on things like about what you did over there, does it change at all? Or is it pretty consistent? You know, no, it doesn't. The re- That's a great question. Um, it doesn't change in so far as do I believe in what I did over there? Absolutely do. That won't change. I, I believe that there's probably a myriad of reasons that we went over there. Um, that can be debated all day long. You've heard us in that movie or that documentary a few times when we're interviewed, a few of us said we felt like we're in a righteous fight. And I don't think we would have fought as well as we did. And not to sound too American about it, but we fought pretty, pretty damn good. Um, If we didn't believe in it as a righteous fight, and that hasn't gone away from any of us. I, I talked, I worked for one of the kids who was in that platoon, like, for the last two years. Um, I've talked to guys, I worked at a, after I got out of the army, I worked at a jail for 10 years and that's half military, half ex-military yeah. guys served with, you know, um, I talk to guys on the phone every day or text them every day. And we, of course, this invariably comes up and almost without exception, nobody regrets going over there. Nobody feels like what we did wasn't worth it. People will ask, I've had people ask, you know, well, what about the friends you lost? Well, I lost a lot of friends on that tour. Guys that were, I knew my whole life. Um, and like the next tour, Scotty Shipway, I lost him. Um, I sent you that article with him and Ryan Elra. Mm-hmm. Um, they, believe me, these were guys who would not have wanted to go any other way. They, that's how they were built. And do I think that we made a big change over there? That's debatable. I think that, uh, well, Scotty, does the quote in the movie where he says stuff about uh, do I think we can win this war or whatever? I'm like, this was when we first met and I'm like, dude, we win, we're winning every fight. We can't lose a fight. It doesn't matter what it takes. We're winning this fight, but what Ottawa and Washington and whoever else decides to do with our victories, that's, we can't decide that. Like we can win you every fight. What you decide to do with that politically, we have no control. over. We yeah. won every, we gave them every battlefield. We took every objective, everything. We never missed a mark. What they did with it after, I don't know. I got asked by some, some reporter over there at one point, like, what do you think we need to win the war, son? You know, like one of these bullshitters. And I said, well, I'll tell you what we need is internet and a phone for every woman. And what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, unless you bring these women up to snuff, unless they're on equal footing, nothing will change. Like, not really. Not really. And that's not going to change there. It just isn't. They're happy where they are. They really are. Yeah. Well, you you had an interesting, one of your quotes in the film was, uh, you go back to this line, like we're hunting Taliban. That's what we're Mm -hmm. doing. And, you know, all all, like the big, like strategic uh, decisions, like are sort of out of our hands. We're we're just doing the job on the ground. Yeah. They, they tell us to go hunt them. Well, we got really good at that. Like to the point where like, to the point where in the beginning couple fights, the Taliban on the radio would say, well, they're Americans. And so we were like, 
screw you, man. We're not American. We're Canadian. Like, get it right. We're offended by it, right? Like, we're really offended by this thing. And uh, eventually, they figured out we were Canadian, and they didn't want to fight us anymore. You'd hear them on the radio say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not dealing with these guys. Screw that. Like, you you, you get your platoon to deal with these Canadians. Yeah. And you'd hear the radio like, no, there's only 50 of us. We're not taking them on. And you'd sit there and be like, yeah, man, that's because yeah want to fight us anymore they don't like us anymore we're we are hockey fighters and you watch stuff and you compare like Korangal and I'm not knocking these guys these are fantastic soldiers absolutely amazing soldiers but you look at the distances that they were their engagements were at with some exceptions were hundreds of meters hundreds of meters our fights were at 10 feet yeah 20 meters you know, our contacts were people were worried about long range engagements. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm using an EOTech and fucking oh. re- like, you, I'm, I'm- you guys are like splashing through irrigation ditches, uh, like getting people like in, in the grass, like that are just like, you, you can see that you can see their eyes. I mean, the distance that you're at the closest guy I got was in the ditch was less than six feet away. And that was not unusual. The guys that we rolled into that ambush position, they died in place. They were at muzzle contact. We just had better mag changes. Our mag changes were faster. And, you know, I'm not worried about shooting at 60 meters. I'm worried about shooting at six feet, how good I am. That's what we learned after all that. So, yeah, we, your, to your grand question, though, no, we, I don't know anybody that regrets it or wishes it differently. I know a few guys wishes that the governments hadn't squandered the political gains of the political ability to use some of that over there. Shameful. Yeah. yeah well, you, you mentioned in the film that it's, you know, the reason for being there is to, it's sort of the mindset of we got to fight them over there so that we don't deal with it over here. You know, and, and I get, you could look at it and say like, well, you know, September 11th happened, but then how many other terrorist attacks happened after that in North America? And the answer mm-hmm. is none. I think that as long as we could keep them off balance, you know, and people were like, well, Afghanistan had nothing to do with September 11th. Well, I beg to differ. We've everybody that had anything to do with the leadership planning portion of it. That's where they were based out of. I mean, yeah, totally. That, it's uh, that's it. And that, that's, that's rabbit holes that people can go down forever. And when I look at it, I did break it down to the simplest denominator denominator, which was hunting Taliban. They're bad dudes you put me in a spot to do it with the best guys in the world and some really good kit, like a lav and the gear that we had and the ROEs we had game on, we're going to win every fight. The Americans, we worked with 10th mountain division. Uh, for well, those would be some pretty, uh, you know, pretty, really good dudes. Yeah. And guys wanted to be con to us because our, our ROEs were better than theirs. They're like, dude, like we want to be with you guys. They loved working with us. They were insane. They we'd roll up on a position, and we'd prep the position with our labs. You know, let it soak up some damage on these guys hunkered into a building. Let let the twenty five do the work, and these guys would roll up in their Hummers, jump out, do a Texas unload, jump back in, push up with their Hummers again. Like, <laughs> you guys are insane. Like, yeah, chill. Let us do. We'll, we got this. You guys chill. They were good fighters. Solid fighters. Yeah, which is the the ROEs that you're talking about. Uh, the rules of engagement. Uh... I've had a lot of people from Bosnia on this program and uh, they, they just got fucked over with, with their rules of engagement. They, they couldn't, 
shoot they, they could they could see like a, an atrocity being committed and they could do yeah. anything with it i did bosnia 94 i was in uh visico kisliak just absolutely we'd be shot at we'd call in the shot rep and the guys back in the talk would be like well is it do you think that it's intentional fire or do you think they're just trying to scare you i'm like it's a bullet hitting our bunker yeah, you, yeah. I, I have no way of delineating whether it's what the intent of it is he's shooting our bunker i can tell you that like we were handcuffed it was brutal we whole villages got wiped out like yeah. within- there, there's there's a guy named scott casey who wrote a book yeah. uh called ghost keepers R- really uh i've had him on yeah. the show uh but yeah he definitely gets into that so it's brutal it was a brutal brutal yeah, yeah. it's almost like the military sort of uh i don't know learned a lesson maybe from that i would i would say of all things just to stay away from the un i mean the the yeah. the that out are just dangerous. They help no one. Nothing gets changed in those countries. I went to Kosovo in 99 and nothing there changed at all. Um, I mean, the fighting was essentially done by that point. Anyway, they, we'd roll over one hill during the push in the Serbs would push off the next hill just in time for the deadline. So they wouldn't get hit by the American air force. The American make a big show of hitting the empty positions do that we did that for like two weeks straight rolling into this country and that was it and we sat there for five months it was you know yeah hey chuck last the last topic i wanted to get to with you it's been fun by the way so when you you talk to veterans people who've been in in combat often it's the feeling is like it, it was the greatest experience that i've ever had and and you want to get back to it but the the contradiction is that you can never replicate the feeling. Is that something that you can sort of re- relate to? Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it will probably sound horrible or confusing or wrong to people that haven't experienced it or had different experiences, but I really liked it. I liked that I was with the best guys in the world. I liked that we thought we were doing the righteous thing. And I believe that we were, I liked that we got good at it and we were hunting horribly evil people. Like, I mean, evil people and uh do you think they're do you think this is like do you think they were truly evil like is there true evil in the world oh yeah i offline i could tell you a couple stories of uh what i've seen for evil like that wouldn't do well on a podcast but there's a few things i've met evil and i've seen evil and i've i've seen evil on our side with the afghan allies i've seen I mean, actual, not just some bad dudes do some bad stuff. I mean, there's something wrong with these people where it goes beyond just hurting people. It's, uh, but we, I feel like we did what we had to do. We did it well. And I, I liked it enough. I felt maybe to go back in 08, they asked for volunteers to go back immediately. And I did. And I, and I did go back. Um, I felt like there was unfinished business. I lost a lot of friends. A lot of friends got hurt. Uh, friends lost legs, arms, whatever. And I felt like I would be doing them wrong if I didn't go back to try and, maybe that's a little bit of personal, like, like me wanting to do, get more for them. Yeah, but, 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 that, but that's a natural thing. And I think, I think a lot of veterans feel that way and are motivated that way. Yeah, absolutely. But when I went back, uh, I could tell during workup training, it was not going to be the same. The ROEs changed on August 1st in 06 uh, to under the NATO standard rules instead of operation enduring freedom. So things were 
not good. And then the whole mindset changed going back in 08. Uh, our chain of command was brutal. They were, they were, they were junk overall. They were junk. Our chain of command in 06 was almost entirely excellent from the CO Colonel Hope down to his majors, except mine, who was junk to most of the captains and lieutenants. They were fantastic. And I'm the hardest guy ever on officers. I, you know, I was an NCO. So that was what I did. Yeah. But once I worked with an 06, they were fantastic. In fact, I had a bigger problem with most of our NCOs. Not most of the ones that had problems were NCOs. They yeah. couldn't handle, they couldn't handle the responsibility, but going back in 08, I tried to recapture it and we had ticks. We had good beefy ticks. We had some fun. It was a different feeling. It wasn't as supported. And I mean, mm. supported publicly. I mean, internally over there, we didn't have the air assets or artillery on demand. We didn't have backup, you know, QRF for us. It was, it wasn't taken seriously after that. Yeah. And I didn't. Yeah. I was done with it after that. Yeah. Almost like sort of not fighting to win it. No, they weren't. They ruined a good war. They ruined a good war. Like if they kept 06 going, I talk to my guys all the time, weekly, daily. Like if we could go back and do what we did in 06, we could have finished that. If we just, if we asked to stay, they actually said at one point in 06, like, do you guys want to stay, extend your tours? And we all said, yeah, we'll stay. And then they turfed it at the end. And cause we were going to stay and beef up the RCRs that relieved us. Yeah. Oof, we would have dominated like with those guys and us game over but yeah well that, that's like uh one of those things like those those what ifs of history yeah but that's not how it went yeah man hey chuck i think you've given like a really good account of uh what happened over there and de definitely like goes what what you've been talking about tonight has definitely gone sort of like straying outside the official narrative of what Canada's involvement in Afghanistan was. Oh yeah. So, I don't like the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but I think it's important because uh, you know, these are stories that people, they should really hear. I mean, if, if when countries send their, their young men off to war, then you, you got to know like what's actually going on. And, and I just, I sort of feel like a lot of it was covered up maybe, or just if you leave out some of the truth, then you are in effect covering up the reality and and so that's why i think it's like this film is really important and, and also the story that you shared with us yeah well i well, i appreciate you giving me the venue and the time to to have this conversation because you're one of a few out there right now i can tell you my friend yeah, man well I, there, <laughs> it's a lot of fun though so chuck I, thanks thanks a lot man I, well thank you and that concludes my talk with chuck Prudonic. if you like today's episode then do yourself a favor and download a copy of the bards of war you're going to like it. There's nothing else like it out there. Hey, if you also like the podcast, then you can help me out in one of the following ways. You can leave a review of the podcast, subscribe, or follow the YouTube channel. On that note, thanks to the new followers of the show, I've got Spencer R., Tristan Smith, David Head, and many, many more. Gentlemen, thank you for your support. That's it. That's all for today's episode. Out.